machine learning algorithms are like genies in the stories. They do exactly what you say. They don't do what you meant. So you have to be very careful in asking the good question and giving the good information. And that's exactly what we are doing now. We are translating our human insights, our knowledge into code that the AI can understand. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Full Cart, a podcast by Riskified in which we bring you insightful conversations about the e-commerce and fraud landscape. My name is Alon, and this week I'm going to be speaking with Riskified research analyst Reka Esther Bodo about the fact that online fraud disproportionately targets marginalized communities. Reka has been at Riskified for three years, previously as a senior data analyst uncovering fraud patterns and anomalies. Today, Reka uses her unique insights to help train our machine learning models to perform better, less biased fraud detection. Hi, Reka. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to come and talk to us today. I'm very excited. I'm going to lead us right into our subject today. We talked about how often in online fraud, people are trying to understand fraudsters, how they do what they do, why they do what they do. And I know that, Rekha, you like to talk about fraud victims. I do. I think when we talk about fraud, we should differentiate between two frauds. There is something that's the simple fraud when your credit card gets stolen and then someone uses your stolen payment details to place an order, etc. That's a simple fraud where you can fight it with all kinds of traditional fraud fighting methods. But there is something that's much more interesting, I think, and much more challenging for everyone in the e-commerce world is when the victim is specifically targeted to be a fraud victim. And there it's very important that we look at which groups and who specifically gets targeted because we need to take that into account when we try to fight this type of fraud. From your experience, who are these groups of people who are most at risk for fraud or who are most targeted So there are a lot of ways that these more complex fraud methods are created. There is something that we call social engineering, where you really look for specific type of people. You know, there are scams that they call elderly people to buy gift cards or racial minorities, mainly the African-American and the Latin American communities in the United States with fake jobs or fake make money from home opportunities. And when you look at victims as groups of people, the more vulnerable the group is, the more vulnerable to fraud they are. There's a lot of reason for that. One of the reasons is because a lot of these communities are underprivileged, then sometimes they have much harder time to understand what is a scam, what is not, what is too good to be true, as we say. A lot of times with elderly victims, as the cognitive abilities are decreasing through time, it makes it harder for them to fully understand what's happening. Communities who are financially in a very bad situation, who what you call overdebted, where they have financial debt in their life that they can't manage, are going to jump on every opportunity to get in a more secure financial situation. We see it in the LGBT community where they get targeted specifically in the vulnerabilities that this community is facing. And this is what the fraudsters are doing. They know exactly where the weak points of society are and they attack there because that's where they get the least amount of friction. And the biggest challenge for us is that a lot of these communities are very distrustful towards the law enforcement agencies. So fraud doesn't even get reported. They sometimes don't even report it to their financial institutions. So that makes fraud go on undetected for much, much longer. 
Elderly fraud is a term that many people are familiar with in the fraud space. And unfortunately, some of us are familiar with it from firsthand experience. A lot of our parents and grandparents have been targeted with these kinds of scams. As you know, a couple of years ago at Riskified, we recorded a few conversations with victims of fraud. And we have one phone call here with an elderly fraud victim who uh, literally walks us through every step of the social engineering that she experienced. Let's pull it up. Hi, I'm calling in order to verify a dispute you recently filed with your bank. Okay, let me tell you let me tell you the whole story of that day, and it may help you understand more. Y- yes, please. Microsoft called me, and they needed to clean up my computer. It would cost me five dollars, so I gave them my American Express number. It wasn't maybe an hour, two hours later. I get two different phone calls. One where somebody was trying to put a charge on Amazon.com. And then another one was to Target. I said, don't ma'am. I've not been to Target. Besides that, Target's quite a ways from my home. And so I got suspicious. Well, there's something going on. So I call Microsoft because I've got a number straight to them to log in and everything. I called Microsoft, and they told me, no, 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 it wasn't us. Yeah, I understand. So basically, the people that called you, they claimed to be representing Microsoft, and then... But they weren't. But they and weren't? They said they would never call me, yes. but I have to call them. Yes, and these people that called you, did they take control of your computer? Did they use your computer somehow? Yes. Microsoft, you know how you give them your code and everything. Yes, I did, hon. Right. Okay, so basically they were using your computer and they placed orders in Target and Amazon using your credit cards. and, and they... I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they did that. Yeah. But they had to take my credit card. I mean, they had it. I gave it to them. I'm... But now all that's changed. Right, right. Because I don't have... Yes. And what did they did you say was the usage for, for them? They, they said they want to clean up viruses from your computer? Yes, said I had quite a few errors. I understand. Okay. Um, thank you so much for your cooperation. This was very helpful for our effort. So this is a fraud demo that we see a lot with elderly victims and in a lot of different industries, but mainly in the gift card industry, is that when elderly victims get called on the phone, And then they are told one of a lot of scenarios, specifically here, what we heard is that there's something wrong with their computer and they have to give remote access to the computer. Usually they're also asked to give their credit card information because there's like a charge for fixing whatever is wrong with the computer. Another scenario is when they are called and they are told that they have outstanding warrants for double murder in Texas and it needs to be solved. And in every case, the solution to all these issues is buying something online. When the FBI or the IRS is calling them, it's usually buying iTunes gift cards for a couple thousand dollars. When they give remote access and their credit card information, then usually the fraudsters are placing the orders on their own. And the biggest challenge that we see as a fraud fighting company in these cases is that the order is placed from the actual credit card holder's computer, sometimes placed by the actual credit card holder. 
So all of those methods that are traditionally helping us to figure out when fraud is being committed are less helpful in these situations, right? Because all of those methods are trying to pinpoint cases when not the credit card owner is placing the order. And the other thing that's very challenging in these cases is that a lot of times victims feel very ashamed because they have been scammed and they feel like, oh, I should have known better. And then a lot of times they don't even submit a chargeback because they feel so ashamed. And we have a harder time finding those type of fraud orders because without a chargeback, sometimes they don't pop up. I want to ask you honestly, why should merchants care about that? First of all, fraud is here and it's going to stay with us forever. It's a very profitable organized crime industry and you have to change your mindset to be willing to fight this forever as long as you are an e-commerce merchant. And that should be your starting point. The second, I think understanding our social responsibility is very important. And it's important for Riskified and it's important for all e-commerce merchants. We all agree that we should be socially responsible and pay attention to the vulnerable communities in our society as much as possible. But I think as an e-commerce merchant, it's even more important for you to understand who are the people who are getting victimized on your platform, because you definitely do not want to be associated with attacks that are targeting specific groups for PR reasons, but also because you as an e-commerce merchant are also socially responsible and you want people to not associate your platform with scams that they suffered. So what can merchants do to minimize the vulnerability of these sectors? I mean, except for fighting fraud on all fronts, how can they play a role in reducing the vulnerability of the most disproportionately affected communities? Well, I think one of the most important things is educate, educate, educate. And you have to educate, first of all, yourself. You have to be very knowledgeable about the fraud trends in your industry, who they affect. You have to educate your employees, especially the customer-facing employees. A lot of times what we see in Riskified is that where merchants are not educating, for example, their customer service operators on the phone, then these agents actually become helpers of fraud because we are people. We all get socially engineered. Don't think for a second that you are immune to it and your phone operators are not immune to it. And fraudsters are really, really, really good at manipulation and they study human psychology and they study what are the successful methods of doing it. The e-commerce fraudster community is an incredibly cooperative community. They share a lot of information with each other. And once they realize where the weak points in one merchants are, suddenly everyone in the fraud world knows that. So if you don't educate your phone agents, then they will become the weak point in the chain. What kind of role does customer service play in fraud prevention? So you can imagine a lot of ways that a phone agent can play a role in fraud. First of all, with PSD2 coming, phone orders are going to become more prevalent in Europe as customers are going to face a little bit harder time placing their orders online. You know, I forgot my password to my bank. I didn't get the text message, so I'm just going to call the merchant. So you're referring to the fact that phone orders are out of scope? Yeah, phone orders are going to be out of scope for PSD too. So every time a customer faces difficulties going through the additional security measures online, they are just going to call the phone orders. And that is something that the fraudsters will realize very fast. And then now you're in a situation where both people who have already had difficulties placing a legitimate order online and people who are not legitimate are calling the phone customer service and 
it's the customer service agent who should help differentiate between those two customers. Now, if I call customer service and I intentionally put on some loud background noise, so it's difficult for them to hear me. I turn on both the washing machine and the microwave. And I also maybe even put on a baby crying. And I pretend to be a legitimate customer who spent all morning trying to place an order and I just couldn't get through. I, I just don't get the text message. I don't understand why I cannot get your services. I just want to order something, something. And then now, how do you differentiate between someone who is legitimately in stress and someone who is playing you and you as a merchant want to give good service to your customers right so they will be like oh yeah we are very sorry that you're experiencing this i might say i forgot my password to the account on your website i am trying to get the customer service agent to give me clues on what the password was how i can get in the internet is full of information so if you ask what my mother's maiden name was the froster has a very good chance of figuring that out and this is why it's incredibly important to educate your customer-facing agents to know how to spot when they are being played, to listen to their guts. A lot of agents are financially motivated to accept as many orders as they can. If you're not financially motivating them to spot fraud, you are going to be in trouble. You have to teach them and you have to motivate them to listen to their gut. If something is not correct, then ask for additional information. And the last part of education that I think merchants can do is educating their customers. Listen to what fraud attacks are being committed against you. If there's a phishing attack, put a warning sign on your website about common scams that are happening. It can stop fraud even before it's happening. It can warn the victim who is on the phone with the fraudster that something might be phishing. You might just give them that 10 seconds of stop and understanding that they are being played. You might just help them get out of the stressful situation and every fraud is stopped before it's committed you know that's that's what you should be focusing on we talked a little bit about the victimization of the minorities and what that looks like when humans when customer service agents have to deal with the situation what does that look like when a machine learning fraud detection system is dealing with these groups who are being targeted that is one of the most challenging issues of current times is trying to spot these patterns by the machine and trying to give the machine features and other tools to spot these orders. One of the things that you can see is that when people are placing orders under stress, they tend to be slower in making the decisions. So they tend to be slower when they are moving between pages. So if I have to buy something, I have to buy a fridge now online. It takes me a lot of time to decide which fridge I want to buy. But once I decide which fridge, I am pretty quick in going through all the e-commerce lifecycle steps of putting it in my cart and then entering my payment information and then submitting my order. Because I have done my research, I am not pretty confident that this is what I'm going to do. But if I am placing this order under duress, someone is on the phone with me and telling me that my life is about to go upside down because the FBI is going to arrest me for a double murder, I am going to be making those clicks much slower. So it's going to take me a longer time to go through that life cycle. So what we are trying to do is finding these changes in behavior patterns and add that to other data points and other features of the order and try to put that together to get the full picture picture and identify these orders and either decline them or at least raise a flag and reach out to the customer to make sure that this was an order that they actually planned to 
place. There are a lot of other things that you can also look at. For example, phishing attacks. A lot of times are local. They are targeting, for example, a state or a county. And then you can look for anomalies, especially geographical anomalies can be a very good flex for some kind of attack going on. So we constantly monitor that. And we are learning and we are educating ourselves and doing our best to come up with more and more ways to stop these attacks. So that kind of touches on your role at Riskified, because you're saying machine learning models, they have this ability to detect all kinds of anomalies and to look at hundreds and hundreds of features. I know that at your current role at Riskified, you kind of bridge the gap between human insight and machine learning. Why is it necessary? Why do you need to find a way to pour human insight into the machine learning models? So as you have said, I have recently transferred inside Riskified. I have been in the fraud intelligence team and currently I am in the model training team. So I spent years learning about e-commerce fraud and now I am going to be training the machine learning models of Riskified. And I think it's an incredibly interesting transfer and I'm very excited about it. Because when you are teaching a machine, there's a lot of responsibility in asking the good question because Machine learning algorithms are like genies in the stories. They do exactly what you say. They don't do what you meant. So you have to be very careful in asking the good question and giving the good information. There are two big parts of machine learning. One is what is the information that the machine is training on and what are the features that you are giving to them? So when you're picking the set of orders that you are training, it's very important to pick a good set because otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where you really did not want to end up. And the other thing is features. Features are basically what the model sees when it looks at orders. It's the computed characteristics of the orders that we create at Riskified. And in order to create good features, you really have to understand what you are looking for. And that's exactly what we are doing now is that we have teams who have spent years in fraud fighting and understanding the MOs. And now they are going to translate that to a language that the machine can understand. I know the pattern of an elderly person suddenly coming for high amounts of iTunes gift cards is very risky. Now I have to teach the machine. I can't tell that to the machine. I have to translate it to a language that a machine, that an AI can understand. And that's exactly what we are doing now. We are translating our human insights, our knowledge into code that the AI can understand. And it's very exciting. It is. I think for context, it's important for people who listen to us to understand that the number of features that are possible to use, they're in like the several thousands. There's so many aspects of, of a person's behavior online and of the device that they're using and of the way that they're purchasing and the connection between each of these things. And so you have to sift through all of that and understand what are the important indicators that can tell you more about this order. Absolutely. The number of features that you can imagine is almost infinite, but you have to pick the ones that are going to be useful. Riskified uses several hundred features in all of our models, and we are constantly creating new ones to understand it better. Just so you understand what could be a feature, it's not something that Riskified deals with. But for example, it's a famous story that butchers know that if the weather gets colder, then they have to put a higher price on soup materials because people will want to make soup. So they will buy meat that makes soup. 
So for example, the morning temperature could be a feature if you were trying to figure out what should be. The price of the meat, right? The morning temperature is not something that's very relevant in e-commerce fraud, although I'm sure that there are uh, industries where it is. But that could be a possible feature that I could feed to our AI models. And I have to know whether it's something that's relevant or it's something that's just going to create noise in the system. Besides picking the most useful features, a lot of the tricky work you're doing is to try to understand how to give the models the best features without injecting human bias, right? I think we should always pay attention to the bias that we have in our sets, that we have in our orders, and how to teach the model not to be biased. It should be one of our core values to understand where the bias is coming from and how can I fight it. There is a lot of things that if you just look at statistics, you will be like, oh, this is true or this is not true. But it's very important for us to understand what is actually going on in the world and not get to very easy conclusions and just use that when we are trying to make decisions. Because it is our responsibility to work for a better world, to work for a world where minorities are not overrepresented amongst fraud victims and where minorities do not have trouble buying things online or going through any kind of AI systems. Yeah, it's both incredibly interesting on a technical and professional level, and it's just something that I think everyone can get behind. We all want to be in a situation in which people aren't denied the ability to shop online. Fighting discrimination is what we all want to do, and fighting for vulnerable communities to not be victims of fraud is both our financial and our ethical and moral responsibility here at Riskified and with our partners of the merchants. That's what we want to do, and it's something that is very important to our core values. Thank you for coming, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. It's been fascinating. I'm very happy to be here and to be the second episode. It's very exciting. And that's all the time we have. Thank you, Rekha, for sharing your insights with us. And thanks to everyone who tuned in. To be the first to know when our next episode comes out, don't forget to hit subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to everyone who made this podcast happen. You're Dan Levy-Altschul, Yael Nemni, Amaral Wankert, and Noam Malka. I'm Alon Livne. See you next time.